We had a solar eclipse in Oklahoma this week, and the events reminded us uh, a lot of the eclipse at Thales, Thales, I don't know how to say old names for stuff that the Greeks wrote down. Pretty pretty sure it's Thales, Uh, the inventor of philosophy. (laughs) But uh, on May 8th, of 585 BCE, uh, there was a battle which was recorded several hundred years later by uh, the historian Herodotus uh, between the Medes, which were an ancient Iranian people, and the Lydians, which were an ancient Turkish kind of people. It was, you know, these, these were kind of pre-state peoples. Uh, and during this battle, a solar, a solar eclipse happened, and they were right in the path of totality. And so because of the eclipse, both sides immediately stopped fighting each other and struck a peace that because they took the blocking of the sun as a sign from the divine. And uh, so in an in exactly similar fashion, this week, Carl and I have struck an accord with our bourgeois rulers, and we will be bringing you a show full to the brim, with corporate chilling, copious advertising, and outright bold-faced lies peddled as truth. Fair and balanced. <laughs> I'm super excited for it. Uh, I looked directly at the sun for an hour, and Turns you're in out when Germany. A, yeah, when there's an eclipse in America, not a thing here. I'm so nothing bad happened to me. NASA's lying to you. It's propaganda. It's just like global warming. And now it, we're it, very willing, very happy to get Exxon checks instead of Soros checks. So. It okay. I I don't even have the level of hollow moon theory I need to to complete what I'm about to say, but. If you if an eclipse happens and you can only see it in part of the world, it proves that the Earth is flat. I don't have anything to back that up with, but I'm just gonna go uh, ahead and pedal that as a as a truth. I I do have something to back that up with. One time I was in a plane, and when I looked out of the window on the plane, the plane it looked flat. Combine that with an eclipse, like I don't I don't know how you believe anything else. They're lying to you, lying to you folks. I I I I I also agree. Um, that they're lying to you, and it's going to get worse. <laughs> no, it's uh, going to get more fair and more balanced. <laughs> <laughs> Way down yonder in the Indian nation, ride my pony on the reservation in the Oklahoma hills where I was born. Now we're down yonder in the Indian nation. The cowboy's life is my occupation in the Oklahoma hills where I was born. I'm Adam Burnett. And I'm Carl Roberts. And this is Red Star Over Oklahoma. We are a small political and news podcast broadcasting about left Oklahoma. Uh, Stay tuned through the episode to catch our interview with Emily Eldridge of the Tulsa Organizing Committee of the Democratic Socialists of America. We just finished the interview and it's awesome. We had such a great time. It's really cool. We're super excited. Yeah. Uh, And we're going to have links to all their stuff in the uh, episode description. So since you're probably, you, you probably clicked on it in your app and saw that already, but just, just so you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll have all of all that there so you can go and uh, go and get involved. Uh, but anyway, we're going to move on quickly this week to um, we've we've uh, in order to accommodate the DSA interview, we've kind of shuffled things around a little bit. But the first thing we're doing is national news. And uh, uh, it's been a hectic week in national news between um, the rather large and menacing rock North Korea threw into the Sea of Japan and uh, uh, old Donnie T handing out pardons to people who, you know, have concentration camps and illegally imprison people. Um, I want to, I want to say something really quick about Arpaio. I didn't know how bad that motherfucker was until I, I read some Twitter thread. That guy is like straight up 
thinking Arizona is fucking um, uh, the, 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 the Nazi yeah. government of, of Poland. Like, that guy's crazy bad. Yeah, I, I've always had a pretty terrible opinion of him. Um, I, I'd have always been aware of what he um, had done uh, and the kind of things he advocated. I was watching an episode of Cops one time. Um, and they actually went to one of his tent cities and he was like walking through and like there, there is like, you can find a, find a few historical examples where you can actually see like slaves near masters with like video where like the master is like walking near the slaves and you can tell that like there's just unbridled violence against the master ready to bubble to the surface, like literally at the first opportunity. And watching him walk through there, just like twirling his cane, chewing on a piece of straw, walking through pink tents in the Arizona desert as these dudes, he's like, oh, they can run. It, it was like, it was like uh, that scene in Holes. It's like, oh, they can run, but where are they going to go? If they cross the line, we'll shoot them. And if we don't shoot them, they'll die in the desert. It's, it was absolutely disgusting. But it's just one of the, it goes to the, like, we didn't want to talk too much about it just because the ghost of the thing is like, Donald Trump's a racist. There's no, it's just true. There's no way around it. It's like Jeff Sessions. I mean, you know, we felt the same, you know, there's a lot of same things to be said about Jeff Sessions and it's like, he's the attorney general. Like, yeah. Apayo's pardoned. It's part of the problem with the system when you just like let people like that walk. But, and I do, I do want to say something. I want to say a very short thing about what you said about the desert and shit, because it, it is going to come up later, and is going to be an important part of like our Oklahoma news story. Like when, when the government does bad things to a certain group of people, that shit spreads. Yep. You know, they they figure that shit out and they start using it at other places. But yep. um, I think we're we're going to talk about. I think what really is the biggest piece of news this week, in mm-hmm. my opinion, um, and that that is Trump's decision about the the war in afghanistan and continuation of u.s troop presence and and not really not calming down so to say yeah um the afghan war yeah um i the, the this was also on the top of my my list for this because I think it is so important to understand um so many of the pieces that are going in to what's going on in Afghanistan. And to understand that, I have the shortest possible history lesson I can give, but essentially just that, like, the the situation in Afghanistan, like, has certain factors that are involved from, like, 2001 on, but how we got to that place is that um, through the, the, the Cold War, we had proxy wars in the Middle East, and through Senator Charlie Wilson, um, we funded jihadis in Georgia to fight the Russians, and those same jihadis and those same weapons, I mean, you also have Iran-Contra during this time, but um, those same people um, were involved with uh, fighting the Russians, and then once they took the weapons that the U.S. gave them, they went back to their home in Afghanistan and Pakistan and those mountains and tribal regions, and with this advanced technology and with this advanced information, they started that they received from the U.S. government. They started to rule over their people as a more militaristic force. Um, but that's well, and, and it, it yeah, it went the other way too in Afghanistan because there there were two. You you had a revolution in Afghanistan in 1978, um, a communist revolution. Uh, then the Soviet Union invaded in 79 to support the communist government. Um, and, and you already had like the Soviet Union and 
Muslims in, in Chechnya, Dagestan, um, were not getting along already. And so you had this flow of, of what at the time uh, we, we called freedom fighters. Uh, funny how, how that changes. Yeah. Uh, between the two places. And, I, watching, watching and, and then you also had uh, uh, Saudis coming in. Yeah. Watching Dan on, Rather say jihadis is one of the most terrifying things I've ever seen. Just like, like having evidence of what happens further on in the story. Like, you know, it's, it's, like, it's like watching Game of Thrones if they, they release the books correctly. It's like seeing Dan Rather say <laughs> jihadi is like listening to, you know, Lyanna Stark cry out for Ned. It's just like, if you know the ending, you're like, oh my God. Really? Yeah. Like, uh oh, yeah. Um, but I mean, I mean, there's even and and so this war, Afghanistan, um, Afghanistan is not a place people should do empire meddling, uh, because that already went terribly in the late 1800s. Uh, fun fact, uh, the new Sherlock series, right? Um, Doctor Watson came back from the war in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and in the new Sherlock series, that's where he got injured and where it was a, a medical. Uh, um, uh, a war doctor mm-hmm. and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Dr. Watson also was a military doctor who had come back from Afghanistan after getting injured. Mm. Um, but, but the war 19, like, there's even a Wikipedia page about this called The War in Afghanistan 1978 to Present. So it's, it's a 39 year conflict at this point. Yeah. And there, there's a, a, a fucking photo of ronald reagan with the leaders of the taliban in the white house and he called them like like the most moral people on the planet or some ronald reagan i have massive cheese holes in my brain bullshit um and but it's just it's 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 another one of those cases where we support somebody like we did in the iran iraq war when we funded a shit just funneled a ton of money and weapons to saddam and then we got into war with him afterwards yeah. and it's it's the exact same shit that well, happened so i think i think kind of to, to to break it down a little further i think it's important to think about it like you know there there is a, a amount of the, when these wars have been going on for so long that there's no legitimate government there's no government that can claim a monopoly of legal violence uh it's that 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 legitimate like the ability to conduct violence um is spread out that's why there's a war i mean that's like what I- a war is is like people competing for the monopoly of legitimized violence and like the thing is is that the u.s as a goal does not have the stabilization of that region what like very importantly because this is like a thing that happened after 1945 once we had nuclear weapons, every war we were engaged in, I mean, they were also mostly proxy, if not all proxy wars, because the Gulf of Tonkin was made up, but, like, they were all proxy wars, but, like, they were all also limited wars. And, like, so the idea of, like, oh, we're going to send in 4,000 more U.S. service members to do X, Y, or Z, or we're going to give, like, this group this or that or the other thing, like, like you can like you can use a lot of military... Um, weapons and tools to do a lot of things but at the end of the day all you're doing is destabilizing if you wanted to engage in a, f- a full uh as as they say roman bellum you know total war roman war you could go and smash them with nuclear weapons and like i'm not advocating that but at the same time it's just indicative of what's actually going on because the u.s military doesn't have any it, they they actually don't want to stabilize the region and not only that, but what they really want to do is waste weapons so that we have to build more. They've, because of, and I, you know, 
to look at recent history, Dick Cheney, Halliburton, Blackwater, um, there is an incentive, and the wartime cabinet that Trump currently has, um, there is an incentivization for profit in war making now from 2001 on that incentivizes using bombs. And so what cool. ends up happening is, I mean, and we've seen this with the drone program under Obama as well, is that you just are, you know, every one of those bombs costs so much money and the U.S. government is just paying it to private citizens. It's just a way to funnel tax dollars to private citizens through the excuse of war. And it's also, it's, it's very good, you know, if you're, if you've got a fucking Raytheon, um, you know, factory or, or corporate headquarters or something like that in your, in your congressional district or in your state, if you're a senator, um, you have a lot, like you say, you, you have a, like, you have a reason to keep it going. Of course, the military has a reason to keep it going because that's how the military justifies its budget to some extent. Mm -hmm. um, and we're also going to talk about that when we talk about our mm -hmm. Oklahoma news. Um, that kind of like, we need this to be happening because that's how we justify the beyond offensive amount of money we, we devote to these things. Um, and, and then... So, like, the company has a reason to lobby the military and say, hey, we should keep doing this and to lobby the, the congressman or senator. And then the senator and the congressman, you know, they have the senators and the congressman for a certain congressional district have every reason to continue supporting it because that's jobs. You know, yeah. like, like you, you're not going to be able to pass an infrastructure bill because Republicans will just be like, well, if it involves spending money, then that's bad. Yeah. And. And to, to some extent, Democrats at the national level will also be like that. Um, yeah, but, but how, and, how often do and, you see them, you know, I mean, I, like the, the defense, the raising of the defense budget is just rubber stamped at this point. Yeah, it, it doesn't matter because it's, it's good for all, all the decision makers mm -hmm. aren't affected in any meaningful way by, by the insanely deleterious effects of, of war, and especially of a war on foreign, foreign soil, and especially a war where Americans, for the most part, aren't, like, directly evolved, um, involved, right? Especially with, with the, the turning our military into, essentially, a um, Call of Duty drone, drone strike real life. Yeah. Um, like, you, you get a lot of the bad effects that, for example, were... A problem in Vietnam and that really pushed people to want to stop the Viet Vietnam War are, are gone because the army is volunteer now. So anybody who's in the army, they're there because they they chose to be there. It's scare quotes around chose. We talked about that in, mm -hmm. in the episode where we talked about uh, trans people in the military. Another thing that happened this week, yeah, that Trump that, we... that thing about trans people in the military. Um, but we, we talked about that, how, how that's not a real choice, but because the people who are in the military tend to be there in some way, because of their own choice, you know, there's a lot less of an anti-war movement. Um, and but it's and, also, I mean, I think what you're leading, you know, leading up to saying is that you know, it's also something that like it, it provides such an incentive, like there's such an incentive to go to the military in certain places that it becomes less of a choice and more of a demand. When you, you know, a great way, to, a great place to think about that is Oklahoma. You know, with Tinker Air Force Base. You know, if we're, you know, if you can't get a manufacturing job, if you can't get a, a you know, a, a job that requires a bachelor or an associate's degree, you can't get into business. Is like if you are walled out of that because the Oklahoma has not given you a good enough education to get through those things. Is like you know, there's the Republicans who go, oh well, you just need to work harder. But what they really mean is you just need to join the military and stop really ethically or morally questioning what any of us are saying. 
Yeah, and, and Oklahoma's economy is pretty deeply tied to the military. Oh, yeah. You know, you have Tinker Air Force Base, and you also have uh, the artillery school in Lawton. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lawton, every, you know, I, I've not spent a lot of time in Lawton, but a lot of, every time I hear about Lawton, people tend to present it as like, this is a military town. Shady 580, baby. <laughs> yep. Um, but I mean, and, and the thing, part of what this, this does, which is really, really crazy, is if you look, if you look at the Afghan, the war in Afghanistan, like specifically, and if you if you look at the Soviet invasion, it's called so the Soviet Union's Vietnam, right? From seventy nine to mm-hmm. what 80, 80, 89. Yeah, okay, from seventy nine to eighty nine, right? And then you look at at the current war, um, two thousand one to today, America's longest war, sixteen years at this point, crazy, utterly crazy. Um, what you see is. <laughs> that a number of the groups that we were funding uh, during the Soviet-Afghan war are, are people we're fighting now. Yeah. And, and that there are people that we, were, that we were, you know, fighting by proxy back then and that we're now fighting with today. Yeah. And, and this, is, this is really indicative of, of, of the serious problems specifically of Afghanistan, but also in general of, of using military intervention to achieve achieve policy like like certain kinds of policy goals in reactions yeah um well what what i was going to say in regards to that is that um i think that it is um so i think you know to put it in a greater sphere i mean when you really look that there's still stuff going on in syria there's still stuff going on in iraq there's still stuff going on in afghanistan there's still stuff going on in pakistan while those places might have like different variations of like legitimate governments and like government bureaucracy and government structures do exist. Like there are still in every one of those like failed states in all honesty, there are extra legal groups that are have different agendas that are moving against each other very rapidly. And all of those agendas and essentially what the US is doing is that they're just switching sides as fast as they can. And that's what the Russians are doing because what it incentivize what they are incentivized from state side is like oh, okay we just need to hand these guns out we need to drop these bombs on somebody because that's how we make more money if we hand guns out if we use bullets if we use bombs we can build more of them to bomb more things because that's how that works but then at the exact same time what it's also doing is destabilizing the area and it's creating more of those groups because if you if you break the you know a group of kurdish fighters into you know, and you, and you kill, you know, 30% of them and they lose their leadership. Okay. They're probably not going to reunify. They'll probably split into two groups. And then one of those groups might end up being on your side, but the other one's against you. And then three years later, you might need to get that other group back on your side and destroy the group that you were fighting against. So you end up fighting a war where everyone's using guns that you're handing out and you're acting like, Oh my gosh, these terrorists are doing all these things and they're so advanced and they have these, you know, stinger missiles that are able to take out our tanks so we need to use drones and we need to incentivize this or that kind of like technological advance but like at the end of the day the problem is one of its of one of the u.s military and the russian military's own making it's like there are bad people there and there is a lot to be said about the need for humanitarian intervention in in certain places but if you're not willing to do that in north fucking korea then you're not willing to do it in afghanistan and all you're doing is is profitizing war yeah and and also i mean this is like not a joke. It, it hasn't happened that much or anything, and, and people don't want to report on it. But some of the weapons from the Soviet-Afghan war are being used against US the soldiers. U.S. No, and, that's one. And, of, that's one of and, my favorite. Uh, I have, every once in a while, I, I can you can find something 
uh, on the internet about uh, U.S. soldiers whenever they get the bullets uh, after a U.S. soldier dies, whenever they tag the bullets and they find that they, are, they were made in the U.S. because they think a lot, like I've read a lot of stuff about they think it's friendly fire and they're like, oh no, this was fired from an AK that was made in like 78 in California. It's like, oh. Yeah. We actually, and- we gave those out. And like, I mean, some of these, some of these groups, you know, like just just think about Al Qaeda, for example, right? Uh, Al Qaeda by the U.S. Um, Al Qaeda came into existence because Osama bin Laden was a rich Saudi asshole. Um, and fuck, fuck Osama bin Laden. I, I think we can both agree yeah. on that front. Yeah. Well, I mean, we can the world is better because he's dead. And and and, and yeah, the, yeah, yeah. In the, general, the, the yeah, this, the. <laughs> People who use violence as a means to their end are always bad, but that doesn't mean that, like, I, when when they have an end and then you're giving them a better means to be more violent, like that, like that's the like that is a problem too. Like you can have a conversation about how that is a problem. If these people, you know, had to, you know, set up the infrastructure to build the weapons that they they currently have access to, that would be a completely different thing. If they had weapons manufacturing plants the way California does in Afghanistan it would be different because there has to be regulation on those things. There has to be roads. There has to be an infrastructure. You need massive infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. And like that is the thing that is different is that instead of, you know, saying, okay, well you can't have nukes until you can, you know, you know, have the infrastructure to make a nuclear weapon or something, you know, uh, uh, kind of that same argument is that you shouldn't give people who don't have the infrastructure to, you know, have these kind of weapons those kind of weapons when all they're doing is like using them against each other and you. And the, I mean, the thing is, so like, like what I wanted to say with Al Qaeda is that Al Qaeda came into existence because we, we were funding um, a group. We were funding essentially the Taliban um, to fight the Russians through the, the Pakistani deep state, their intelligence network, the ISI and, and a specific group called the Haqqani network. And who, who, then, the, let me just say, the Haqqanis are, are, are literally the masterminds behind 9-11. They are literally the masterminds behind most of the terrorist assaults that happened throughout the Middle East. The Haqqani network is a deep, extra-legal organization that exists in the Pakistani mountains that does not report to any government. They are their own legitimate yet- violence. Yeah, and it's and it's tied into the the Pakistani state, and we can't do anything about it. And that wouldn't have happened if it weren't for us. Like that that group exists expressly because we needed contacts to radical right wing groups in Afghanistan, and the Taliban benefited from that, took over the country, ran the country, and that Al Qaeda exists there. And you know, like I said, there's a photo of Reagan with leaders of the Taliban in the White House, and now we're now we're fighting the Taliban. Yeah, and I mean, like. It, it's, it's just, it, it's the worst kind of empire whenever you set this up and then you end up fighting the people that you were supporting before because you win the Cold War and suddenly the big bad guy isn't the Russians anymore because the Russians can't do imperial stuff. They've gotten back to where they can do it to at least a little, a little extent nowadays, but they couldn't for a very long time. And of course, Al-Qaeda landed on, on the U.S. because the U.S. was deeply involved in destroying Afghanistan. Yeah. And ironically, um, I, I think this is, this is one of the, the worst things about the war, right? Like Afghanistan is a country that could be insanely rich. It has great natural, great resource. natural resources. But the Afghan economy 
is massively dominated by the production of uh, opioids, uh, of opium, of heroin, and growing poppies, right? Mm. And what we do is we send in people, we bomb people in support of Afghan troops because technically the Afghan army is running the war now. Um, and, and we can't do anything to stop this opium production. So now Afghanistan is producing something like 90 to 95% of the world's opium. And the exact same thing actually happened during the Vietnam mm -hmm. War. There's this area in Southeast Asia called the Golden Triangle that used to be the hotbed of opium production. Yeah. And nowadays it's moved to Afghanistan because the war has so destabilized the country. I mean, there, there, are people having, there, there are people having midlife crises in Afghanistan that have, are having a midlife crisis never having lived in a country that wasn't at war, yeah. right? And now, like, we can't even do this shit where we, we get them to stop producing opium for foreign markets and start doing shit that would be beneficial to Afghan society because our idea is not invest in infrastructure, use soft power, you know, develop schools and shit like that. It's uh, instead le leverage the use leverage military the, force. Yeah, leverage the area with soft power to, you know, <clears throat> incentivize stabilization and like stabilization through trading. And yeah, we, we were not doing that at all. <laughs> and then and then this opium mostly ends up in, you know, in, in the first world, to to use a, a Cold War term here. Yeah. Right? This opium is is not used locally nearly as much as it is uh, used other places. And yeah. it also, um, you know, part of why, and something nobody tends to talk about, we tend to think, oh, the military could do it, blah, blah, blah. We have the world's greatest military. And we do have the best military that's ever existed on the planet, right? Mm. But the military isn't going to win wars in this kind of asymmetric situation. Like, yes, we were able to win World War II and World War One because there was a defined enemy with very specific controls well, and, and all this and kind of shit. Fuck. And so I war mean, was happening between... World War II was won by the Russians. I mean, I'm sorry. Like, I, I, as a student of history, that's something no, that always... No, it's 100% true. I mean, it, it just always irks me when I see Americans being like, oh, you know, we're the greatest land army. He's like, sure, yeah. Like, we definitely are the most technologically advanced and largest military by a margin. But, like, when you talk about, like, World War II, like, the, like I see propaganda every once in a while. People wear that on their sleeves of, like, oh, World War II, back-to-back -back World War champs. And, like, like, you realize the Russians won that war. Like, they did 80% of the killing. You, you do own a trucker hat that says back-to-back -back World War II. I mean, I do, but that's because <laughs> I'm proud. Um, but, I mean, I mean, so... Like, and what I mean to draw out there is that, like, when, when we were fighting Germany in World War II, when we were fighting Japan in World War II, like, there was a defined group of people to whom we would communicate and say, hey, this war is over, right? And this, this is an insurgent war, right? This is, this is war between wa local warlords, between organizations big and small. And you're not going to win with the military like that. And the reason these organizations tend to do so well, like the Taliban, because Al-Qaeda is not the Taliban. The two organizations are, are very different. The Taliban was just okay with Al-Qaeda until we invaded and said, fuck you. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, they're providing services oftentimes. You know, they're, they're providing things that people need that they can't get access to because there's no functioning government since there's been a war for 39 years. Yeah. And... And we don't want to, you know, that's, that doesn't make good money. You can only make money like that if you're looting the country, which Halliburton did do in Iraq, very effective. Um, oh, yeah. But, and, and, and when you loot like that, that incentivizes insurgency, that incentivizes going to groups of bad people. And, and those bad people, you know, are closer to 
the ground than we are because they're locals in the first place on the whole. And they're also doing things that, that we simply aren't able, that our military isn't meant to do. Our military is not meant to build like public infrastructure, to build schools that are responsive to the needs of locals, to, to do shit like that. And we, we use our military as if we're fighting you know, states. And we're not fighting states anymore. If there's anything, like, I don't think anybody can ever say that our military is going to solve problems in places like Afghanistan anymore after Iraq. Because we did win the war in the same way that we won World War II in Iraq. Mm. The government surrendered, it was over, and, and there's still, it's still a problem. Yeah. Nothing has been solved by that. Yeah. And, and, it, and it, in some ways, made it worse. Yeah. And we just... We think that this kind of imperialist shit is good, and it is good for CEOs. Yeah, but volunteering. And a ton of Americans get injured, and what, like 40,000 Afghani people have died yeah. since yeah, the 2001 and, and, and in my opinion, um, soldiers, <clears throat> I have a lot of respect for, um, and not only that, but they're workers too. Um, and they are not the people who are making these decisions at the top level. But I think one of the things you said um, it really helps lead us into the next thing, and that's the, the incentivization um, of the creating uh, these kind of, uh, I said cult, these kind of small um, uh, insurgent groups and how that's not something our, our military is very good at dealing with. It's also not something that the FBI and local police are very good at dealing with uh, in the U.S. And that brings us to Oklahoma news. This happened a few weeks ago, but we wanted to make sure that we covered it at length. So we took some time to do some reading and some research. And so there was a gentleman arrested. I'm not going to say a gentleman. There was a fucker arrested for attempting to, re, uh, to uh, bomb a bank in Oklahoma City. Uh, basically saying that he wanted to redo the Oklahoma City bombing perpetrated by uh, Timothy McVeigh. Um, and um, uh, there, there are a few bits of fact that I think are important to, to label on here without too much commentary. First of all, he's a, an avowed right-winger. Um, he was using very right-wing rhetoric, and um, so was McVeigh. McVeigh was a member of several organizations, including organizations in Oklahoma that were extra-legal and operated outside of the law where sheriff's departments would not uh, engage with them uh, as right-wing. He was also um, a diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic, um, and the FBI uh, worked th this, with him. This guy, this guy was. Yeah, the, uh, Jerry, the, 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 Jerry not, Drake Varnell, not McKay. Not, yeah, not um, But he was a paranoid <clears throat> schizophrenic, a diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic, and the FBI, um, according to his family, um, entrapped him and basically led him down this path. Um, it's not even really according to the fa the family said that this happened, but like the FBI timeline that they're at least to the news already sounds like fishy. Sounds sounds very very fishy if you look at it because he 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 was working with. You know, the FBI talked to him a bit about this and so on. And um, the people he was working with to do this were both FBI informants. Yeah. Both of the individuals that he, he made, supposedly made this bomb with. And um, <clears throat> apparently also, like, he might, not have, he might not have been involved in making the fake bomb. He might have just been in the room when they were making the fake bomb. The two yeah. FBI informants. Which is something that's important to say. Yeah. Um, well, and I think so. I, I like on one hand, you know, I understand the I as someone who's worked in law enforcement, I understand what CIs do, uh, criminal informants. I understand how they work and what their purpose is. 
um, and how they can be helpful to infiltrating those kind of uh, complex far-right organizations. Um, but the Federal Bureau of Investigation has made itself um, a lot of, it, it has helped itself out an enormous amount by doing this exact um, entire show over and over and over again. And I, I, you know, I'm gonna rattle off a bunch of names, but you talk about David Koresh and the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas. He, David Koresh was working with the FBI and the local sheriff's department up to a month before he was raided at his compound. And, and, and not as an extra, extra like, not as like something like where they were like uh, trying to entrap him. No, he was turning over child molesters in his church to the FBI working as a criminal informant, and then they, they swung on him. To talk about Timothy McVeigh as well, there was an FBI entrapment portion of that where they were giving certain uh, things to Timothy McVeigh, along with the Children of God cult, Scientology, David Duke's KKK, the 9-11 hijackers. They, they are all have been propped up in a certain way by the FBI. And, and the, the guy at Ruby Ridge, too. Um, yeah. what, what set that off is that the FBI asked him he had moved out somewhere somewhere in the intermontane west near a far-right compound, and they uh, wanted an in on the far-right compound. So they asked him to make some sawed-off shotguns for them, mm-hmm. which he did, and then they were like, oh, we're the FBI. Yeah. So now you're going to have to tell us what's going on in the far-right compound. But importantly, after Waco, um, and especially after the Oklahoma City bombing in Ruby Ridge, uh, the FBI like backed off yeah. the far right to some extent because they were like oh far right stuff is like we've been very involved in this and like clearly after the Oklahoma City bombing this is inflaming stuff so we need yeah. to be more hands off here and what happened in terms of time <clears throat> with the FBI uh whenever they backed off that was 911 happened you know 5 years after the Oklahoma City bombing you have 911 and which the FBI which, suddenly... which not not to skip skip over 9/11 happened because of infrastructure and and uh, arms given to radical organizations in the Middle East by Charlie Wilson that we just talked about in, in Afghanistan, Afghanistan literally that, yeah yeah that, that uh, created that problem yeah al qaeda flourished and came to be a big organization because we backed the Taliban in Afghanistan so like these these two stories are intimately connected yeah. in that sense but what happens after 9/11 with the FBI specifically is that they started going very intensely after Muslim, quote-unquote, terrorists stateside, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they started really diving into trying to find them. James Comey was a very important part of this. Mm-hmm. And um, so what, what they started doing is sending in informants. And sometimes these are people, you know, that the FBI has gotten in trouble for certain things. Um, and the FBI says, if you will help us catch people doing bad things, you know, we're going to pay you some money. It's hard for you to get a job because you're a felon since we caught you doing shit. Or mm-hmm. we're going to make your, you know, we're going to make your sentence lighter and so on. Yeah. So the FBI started this program of essentially sending informants into mosques around the country and stirring up tensions. Like yeah. one of the things they would do is they, they'd send an FBI guy to somebody who goes to a, a, a radical you know, a mosque that's conservative, so no different than a conservative church, right? Yep. Um, and I mean, overwhelmingly, conservative churches don't do Timothy McVeigh bullshit, no matter how much we don't like them. Like, mm-hmm. that's, that's not really that common. And the exact same is true of, uh, is actually more true of right-wing mosques than it is of Christian churches yeah. in America. Um, 
And so they, they get people for, you know, they, they go ask them some questions. The person would try and be as helpful as possible and give as many answers as possible. Then they come back and ask more questions. They trip up on a small fact like, what were you doing on Tuesday the 14th? And then they'd arrest them for that and flip them and have them be informants. And then those informants would go scare up stuff. They'd yeah. go and be like, hey, I fucking death to America. Let's go bomb some people. Let's, let's build a bomb. And yeah. they, they'd really pressure innocent Muslims, oftentimes like this guy, not in the best mental health situation, into taking part in FBI-created and led plots to do terrorism in America. And, and, and so I think that that leads right to um, basically the heart of this issue for me, which is that you know in support of these radical individuals, um, it, the, the supporting radical individuals and radical individuals in poor mental health who are more likely to commit violence and be successful, all that does is in, is is incentivize it for the FBI because there's 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 and there's a lot of incentive for it because on one by by entrapping these individuals it guarantees them prosecutions. It's so much easier when you can have a CIA go. No, that's the guy I was sitting next to when we made the bomb. Like that, that's just a slam dunk, uh, as, as a, as a prosecutor. Number two, um, it, it, it incentivizes this violence. I mean, it literally is like rolling the dice with people's lives. I mean, if this guy, you know, you, you know, had, I mean, there's plenty of, you know, Ruby Ridge, Waco, uh, you know, Oklahoma city bombing. I mean, you can look at that and go, wow, these were people who, um, you know, actually did end lives and that. You know, the, but they, they, the, the FBI is able to use that actual violence to say, wow, this is so bad. We need more FBI presence. We need more police presence. We need more militarization of the police. We need stronger laws that allow us to go after people at earlier stages in the crimes. And the other thing about that is, is that whenever they take these people down, the people who are around them and believe, you know, th these, these other right, you know, these other radicals that are there with them, when you take one of them down by shitty means of entrapping them and having criminal informants and breaking that stuff down and leading them down a path that gets them in more trouble than they may have, might have wanted to when they're in a poor mental health condition... Like, I don't have sympathy for terrorists, but what that does is it provides those radicalists martyrs around which to rally. And it, allows... and it also, it, yeah. it, it proves their point that the federal government is after them. And that's why the FBI, after, after the Oklahoma City bombing, um, rolled back a lot of its programs trying to deal with far-right terrorism in America. Because, like, Waco and Ruby Ridge were both examples of the federal government doing doing shit that was, you know, overstepping its bounds. And if you, if you look at the period from 2001 to 2010, um, there's a study uh, by Project Salam and the National Coalition to Protect Civil Freedoms that says that 94.2% of all the terrorism-related convictions on the DOJ list um, were ones where the FBI had an active role in the terror plot. So these guys, God. if this guy had been a part of, of you know, a far-right organization, instead of just being a guy who needed access to mental health care that he wasn't getting because rural health care in Oklahoma is terrible mm -hmm. and health care in general in Oklahoma is massively underfunded. Um, another connection to the thing we talk about a lot, health care. Yeah. Um, you know, if he had been part of a group, <clears throat> all of those guys would have been able to say, holy shit, the government is, is doing what we think is legal and okay and, and they're spying on us and then, and then they're literally entrapping us. Yeah. Yeah, and so I think um, I think it's important here to touch on the fact that 
again, it's just that this is something, uh, you know, as socialists, uh, you know, it's that it's, it's, you know, we want to move forward and I never want to sound regressive. I never want to sound, oh, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't ever want to be an apologist for terrorists and I don't ever want to sound regressive in the ability of people to congregate and have a free, free flow of ideas. And so I think so importantly, what we're both trying to say in this is that when the FBI involves itself in this way, it is creating both the, 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 it is creating the problem. Like it, that, that is, that is the problem. If there was a, 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 an area where these people had access to good mental health care so that people who are susceptible to being misled or going down radical violent paths have the kind of mental health and stability, and not only that, but community policing and the ability to have trust in your government and then have good infrastructure so that people can have conversations without feeling like they're being marginalized or have violence propagated against them. Like Those, those are how you fix these problems. You know how you don't fix these problems? Creating more margin criminalizing everyone and then using it as an excuse for stronger laws against free speech and 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 d and using it to pull money from healthcare and infrastructure and education into militarizing the police and militarizing the fbi and it's also it's also this directly connects because that's that's a really important point what you just said and it directly connects too to the problem with the fbi doing this with muslims because the fbi did did this with muslims since like September 11th onward, they have been doing this actively with Muslims. And that shit spreads. And that's why we have to defend the people who are, who are most kept outside of our society, the people at the, at the margins that don't seem to be at the center, you know, the, the other of American society, which, which these days really, to a large extent, you know, Muslims have, have taken that place, at least in international relations in a lot of ways. Um, and people act like that. And, and that's why we have to defend, you know, Muslims, Arabs, black people, uh, Latinx people, LGBTQI people, because um, whenever there's a group of people that that the FBI, for example, can do shitty stuff to, that will spread. That mm-hmm. will come to all of us. That doesn't stop. And that's that's what what I said earlier about our Arpaio our, our is that you know Arpaio was doing shitty stuff to Hispanics, and that stuff spreads. That yeah. stuff spreads from from Latinx people coming across the border and just living in Arizona legally. Two other people. The, the, the FBI trying to entrap people spreads from just Muslims to <clears throat> everybody else. And so anytime you don't complain about that, you're basically saying in, in five, ten years, maybe I'm going to be the one that gets, gets hit by it. It's that famous, uh, you know, first they came for the communists and I did not speak up because I wasn't a communist. That's, that's how U.S. law enforcement works. Yeah. And we have to speak up at the start or else. You, even when we don't worse. agree. Even when we don't agree, there is nothing that I, I, I will stand up and, and, and take, you know, like, I, I, I do not support terrorists. I do not support right-wingers. I do not support that kind of radical, radicalization and that kind of radical speech. But at the same time, we have to be able to stand up here and, and, and yeah, uh, say something about it because... And, it, and the field once, on which to start, oppose them... Yeah. The field on which to oppose these right-wing people is not through state repression. That has never worked out for those of us on the left because the, the American state apparatus exists to crush the left, right? And I'm not saying, you know, like, this, this guy's an asshole, clearly. Mm. But, but the thing is, it never would have come up if the FBI hadn't been prepped to do this again by 16 years of doing this to Muslims. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're very right. All right, next up, we've got our interview with GSA Tulsa. Stay tuned. Well, 
Well, all right. So we're here with Emily Eldridge of DSA Tulsa, and uh, we are uh, so excited to have you today. Um, I'm so, excited Yeah. Um, so um, how did you get in, or how long have you been working with the DSA in Tulsa? Um, in Tulsa, um, well, we started the OC, the organizing committee, um, back in February. Um, my um, a comrade started it, and he had to um, kind of stop uh, organizing with us because of family uh, matters and everything. But um, it's been like a core group of like 10 of us um, organizing everything since then. Um, and I actually joined DSA, though, um, in December, I believe. Okay. So, um, but I, had, I didn't start actually organizing with DSA until February-ish. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. Um, so, so what is your background? Um, what, what kind of, you know, what, what, what led you to uh, DSA? Um, well, I'm a college student right now, and um, I actually didn't really get into socialism until, um, well, I mean, I started kind of dabbling um, after <laughs> Bernie got cheated. Um, and, yeah. uh, cause I was, I was like, well, you know, things really aren't right here. And I, I grew up in like a very traditional Democrat household. Um, and I always considered myself very liberal or whatever. And, um, always kind of felt there were some things wrong, but, um, was taught like the democratic party is always right. And they know it's best. So just, you know, be quiet. It's fine. Go with it. And um, <laughs> one of my friends, actually, um, who um, has been a leftist for a while, kind of made me see what was wrong with everything, especially after, um, like I said, Bernie got cheated. And um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, and I've been very online for a while now. So <laughs> I kind of was already... Um, know following all of the weird twitter stuff and saw that they were um not happy with the democratic party a lot of the time and found dsa through online really <laughs> and um you know realized whoa this is this is what it's about you know not yeah. um not yeah. the corporate democratic party and i finally realized what all was kind of wrong with it and what i actually want to be fighting for yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, I think both Carl and I, um, Carl, you were in the States for the Bernie disaster, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah. I was yeah, there for the, the, or, yeah. For the, the beginning of it. Yeah. And yeah, I, I think, yeah, but I mean, you know, watching what happened on OU's campus and on other college campuses and just the atmosphere in Oklahoma, especially with Bernie winning the primary here, it's just like, it was so indicative of what was going on. It was like we actually were able to be like, oh, wow, these, these are actually some problems that we can fix rather than letting centrist Democrats kind of just, you know, bide their time with the Republicans in office, especially in Oklahoma. Especially um, the, with the backlash against, you know, the whole Bernie bro thing and claiming, you know, all the like, oh, you're sexist if you don't like Hillary. <laughs> like it, it made it very apparent to me, um, you know, especially after just moving out of my very traditionally Democrat household and going to college, it was like perfect timing. Like, um, you know, this is what's wrong with <laughs> everything you've been taught, you know? So, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think I I think we both also I mean we are kind of Bernie Bros par excellence you could say. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I mean we yeah. both saw that and we we felt that vibe from a lot of people too and it was really it's really weird to be like told oh yeah all these people it's it's a bunch of white college dudes that smoke a bunch of pot and it's like it's well, really weird to be told you're a Bernie bro <laughs> as a girl. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> And to be told you're a sexist as like a diehard socialist feminist. So it's also so funny when people are like, oh, you're a sexist. And you're like, well, I'm just concerned about like women of color in Honduras. Yeah. Like that's a right. problem that maybe we should talk about. And right. Yemen and Saudi Arabia. <laughs> yeah, maybe, it, maybe feminism isn't just, you know, hey, you don't need to shave your armpits. Uh, be be free and be a woman. Like, Tina Fey's sheet cake is the best. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, people just have a very hard time, you know, stepping out of the white feminism box a little bit. and. Yeah, and I, I think, uh, you know, the Republicans have done a really good job. Um, you you kind of mentioned the being online a lot thing. And, like, I think the Republicans have done a really good job of running with some of the phrases and phraseology that, like, Trump has used with fake news and alt-left and that kind of stuff and really run with it. And, like, I just see so many terrible memes that are just, like... Not represent. I was looking at something. It was like this morning because uh, I peruse a lot of p- terrible places on the internet, and like I was looking at something this morning, and uh, there was a joke about like child drag queens, and like oh, oh. it's like <laughs> not, no one's doing that. <laughs> it's not happening anywhere. You're making things and, up to make yourself angry. And if they are like drag's cool, like what what the what the hell? RuPaul's is Drag Race on? is the best it's thing dope. that's ever happened to me. <laughs> yeah, for real. <laughs> So, um, what would you characterize as DSA's mission in Oklahoma currently? Um, well, I don't know. I mean, what I've found working with, um, you know, people in Tulsa is we all have, you know, our individual passions and our, um, individual, you know, issues that affect us personally that we maybe care about more than others. And um, so I can't really speak for like everyone in Mm -hmm. DSA Mm -hmm. um, or involved with DSA around us. But um, for me, I think um, immigration is a big one here and Mm -hmm. um, and racism. (laughs) I mean, if you just drive through Tulsa, you can literally see the segregation. it is, you can like draw lines, like this is a white area, this is a black area, this is a Latinx area. Like um, the racism is just, uh, um, I mean, segregation and racism that comes along with that. Um, you know, like that's a bad part of town. Well, uh, no, I mean, it's just the black part of town. Um, <laughs> you know. Um, There's no grocery stores there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, it's very segregated. Um, that's another big thing. And um, there are, there's a big illegal immigrant population here as well. Um, and um, also uh, working with um, people in education is a big one because um, uh, maybe, you know, starting to get teachers unions or whatever, because I mean, education funding here is just embarrassing. <laughs> uh, and I think we've yelled about education on the podcast like basically every episode at this yeah, point. <laughs> right. It's it's disgusting. Not, a, not enough. Yeah. My mom actually is a teacher. Um, and 
it's really interesting to see her. Um, and like I said, you know, my parents are both very traditional Democrats. Um, and it's really interesting to see what she struggles with, but she hasn't really gotten to the, oh, we need to unionize yeah. sort of uh, point yet. <laughs> Trying to get there. But, um, yeah, um, so education's another big one. And just um, workers' rights in general. Um, I mean, the minimum wage here is what, 725 still? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah, it's um, the federal min. Yeah. And, and-, and Mary Fallon passed a law saying that uh, essentially OKC and Tulsa can't up that. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, it's mm-hmm. not saying, but um, yeah, um, there's a lot of minimum wage workers around here who just are not treated fairly, and also who a lot of people who have the mentality that like they are blessed with this right to work and this right to be paid nine dollars an hour. Like, I am so blessed to go to work for. 50 hours per week and get $9 an hour, like, and no insurance. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, capitalism has just created this, you know, you are so lucky to be able to work here sort of mentality. And so many people, especially around this area, even like in college students, um, I mean, sometimes Mm -hmm. I'll talk people and they're like I'm really just so lucky you know like I complain about my job but I'm really grateful for the opportunity to work and it's like you your boss needs you more than you need boss and anytime you say stuff like that people have a really adverse reaction um yeah but anyway yeah so yeah, it's always I always think I always think it's fun um, because th- there there are just certain phrases uh, that like I have to be wary of in casual political conversation with people. It's like if I refer to money as capital at any point, they know. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just like right, I, I gotta say cash or something. Cause yeah, I'm or like, well, that, you're allowing capital uh, capital to incentivize something. A couple of times, yeah. people are like, whoa, 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 wait. <laughs> Did I hear yeah. Stalin? Like, you know, yeah. exactly. Really freaked out by that. So, yeah. So, um, okay. So, how can an interested? So, how could someone who's interested in Tulsa get involved with y'all? Um, I mean, just come to a meeting. We have one on September fourteenth. I think. Fourteenth, okay. thirteenth. It's on the DSA Tulsa Twitter. Um, okay. At, so, what Eastside yeah. Christian Church? Um. But yeah, what, just what, going what's y'all's Twitter Twitter handle? Just uh, it's so that... at Tulsa underscore DS. Let me make sure on that. I... <laughs> no <laughs> no I worries. I just like okay DS at DSA underscore Tulsa. Okay, at um, DSA underscore okay. Tulsa. Okay, cool. Yeah. And then yeah, you said there's a meeting uh, September 14th at the Eastside Church. Eastside Christian Church at 7 p.m. Yes. Um, and wh- where's the church at? Uh, it's around like 14th and Harvard, I want to say. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Midtown area, right, right next to TU, basically. Um, okay. And we're going to be, we're not an official chapter yet. We're still considered an organizing committee. So we're actually going to try to get signatures at the next meeting and try to fulfill the um, 20 dues paying members, um, uh, you know, what's it called? Quota? Quota? Yeah. yeah. Sure. Um, you have That's to meet right. like 20 dues paying members in order to like attain chapterhood. So okay. we're going to try to do that. And um, 
We're going to start discussing chair elections probably and what we want to focus on for the fall. Um, and yeah, I mean, anybody can come. You know, anybody can message us on Twitter uh, or Facebook or whatever. Yeah. Well, I think that's so awesome, um, you know, for people who are listening to this and who are, you know, um, able in the Tulsa area um, to be a part of that, because I think it's so just such a great opportunity to be on the ground floor in uh, some great social organizing, yeah. uh, you know, until the Supreme Court says that communist speech is illegal. Like, I'm sure they yeah, will. Yeah, until the, the, the state of Oklahoma adds DSA to you know, yeah, the, the graveyard of dead parties with mor- the CPU moratoriums, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so um, is there anything else you would like to, to plug or to talk about while uh, you, we've got the opportunity to here today? Um, just come out and join us if you want to. And if you, if you want to be there, but you can't, um, you can always message us um, on, like I said, on Twitter or Facebook. Um, on Facebook, we're just DSA Tulsa, um, or maybe it's Democrat, it's Democratic Socialists of America Tulsa, actually, on okay. Facebook. Um, and uh, we send out like a meeting summary to anyone who like messages us and asks for it. Um, yeah. Well, cool. awesome. Well, hey, Emily, great. thank you so much for coming on today. It's been really great to talk to you. Yeah, it's been great talking to you all as well. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. told you that interview was going to be awesome um and so we have one last little bit of uh last little piece of uh news for the week and uh i'm gonna let carl take it away with some history we should remember yeah so this month uh is the hundred year anniversary of the green corn rebellion um probably asking yourself what's green corn rebellion carl (laughs) what Um, is it well, surprisingly, it's something you probably won't learn in history class. Well, that's Oklahoma. because Oklahoma, hi- Oklahoma history books are just two pieces of cardboard with some loose leaf paper in, in there that have drawings <laughs> of di- dinosaurs crossed out. <laughs> Actually, uh, surprisingly accurate. And I went, I, I went to high quality high school. Um, I did not. But no, I even, I, I had a, a very liberal, not, not. I wouldn't say left uh, Oklahoma history teacher in, in high school. And I didn't fucking hear a word about this. Yeah. Um, but so, so the Green Corn Rebellion was a rebellion, right? It's there in the name. And it, it happened on, or, or rather histories of it focus on uh, the 2nd and 3rd of August. But it, it's really something that, that spanned June to October. And it was labor unrest, mainly focused in the eastern part of the state, but, but throughout the whole state. Um, and it was what happened on the 2nd and 3rd of August was a group of about 500 people, a multiracial coalition, white people, black people, and uh, indigenous people, all, you know, gathered up together. And they were saying, you know, we want to march on Washington and overthrow the government, right? Mm-hmm. The draft had just been in, uh, um, instated about a month earlier, I think, in June. Uh, the draft was instated by Wilson. Uh, Woodrow Wilson, who got elected on keeping America out of the war, right, mm-hmm. in 1916. Um, and they were, they were going to eat green corn on the way to Washington. And they, they thought that their uprising would set off massive revolutions throughout the whole country, you know, spreading 
across uh, across Oklahoma and, into Western Texas, and, and then I, up into Colorado, up to Chicago. And, and so importantly, I think, in a national perspective, you also have to remember the courage with which these people are acting, because um, they the anti-draft um, <clears throat> stuff, this has come out just after the Espionage Act has been ratified by the Supreme Court, and there, during this exact time from 1914 to 1918, there were four Supreme Court cases where... Um, Communists and socialists were thrown in jail for printing pamphlets encouraging people to not register for the draft. Like the 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 change to a more modern understanding of free speech came later when we said that the KKK was allowed to use all of the pejoratives that they ever wanted to. But let's remember that at this time in America, in 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 the early nineteen teens, is that these people were being thrown in jail for their speech, and so anything I and mean, you're talking about a rebellion like these people were being thrown in jail already for their speech so a rebellion took some uh, for lack of a better word and stones they, it wasn't just it wasn't just you know getting thrown in jail for their speech um a lot of of federal police institutions and, and private police like the pinkertons and the fbi were coming into existence to fight labor agitation and labor unrest mm-hmm. um which is an interesting point for this because this eastern Oklahoma group, mainly comprised of tenant farmers, organized in a group called the Working Class Union, um, because the IWW and the Socialist Party wouldn't take them since they weren't wage workers. Mm-hmm. Um, they had, in 1916, uh, I think it was 1916, they had shipped a bunch of guns um, to a group of striking miners in Arkansas, in, eastern, in western Arkansas, rather, that... Um, were attacked by the National Guard sent out to tell them, no, you can't strike, you have to keep working. So, like, these were people who were aware, very, very aware, that the full state apparatus could come down like a hammer on them for trying, trying to, you know, rise up and, and radically change society. And that was also something they, they had in their, in their vision. Um, because they, they were living in the red like oklahoma when it was the reddest state in the union and by red i don't mean like it is now i mean red as in socialist right mm-hmm. because uh the highest percentage that eugene debs the show the perennial socialist party candidate for president ever got in a state was 16 percent in the state of oklahoma in 1912 right yep. so that's the best he ever did was in oklahoma and these people were involved with that and some of them had direct connections to eugene debs um and so they they knew what they were fighting for, and they and they were fighting for socialism yeah. in our state of Oklahoma, and they were organized across state lines and across racial lines. Yeah. So I wanna I wanna talk a little bit about like the the relative specifics here because what happened was um you you had this very red state right, and you had a bunch of people moving in from the south, mainly from the south. And then a native population that was there and a black population that was already there since the idea had been floated for Oklahoma to be either an Indian state or a black state beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, and you had all of them living in the eastern, ma- ma- the majority of people living in the eastern part of the state and engaged in a bunch of shitty labor, right? You had miners, you had um, tenant farmers, like I said, and you had people working on the railroad. 
And so this group of people got together and they were like, well, we need to think about what we can do to stop the draft. Because if people leave home, you know, you need all the labor at the house you can have because people are starving since mm -hmm. the food is fleeing the state of Oklahoma. The state of Oklahoma is producing a ton of food and it's not staying because yeah. there's not enough money in Oklahoma. Um, and then if young people leave, you know, if your son leaves and you work in the mine, who's going to work the farm at home or something? Or if the wife doesn't have any men left at the, at the house because they're all at war, who's going to do some of the, the very gendered labor that exists? Back yeah. Then, right. So, so they all came together and <clears throat> starting in June, um, this group of people that was organized um, started doing some stuff. They started having meetings. There was a big meeting in El Reno in July. In June, uh, they burned down, I think, a feed tower. <clears throat> and what it came to on the second is that they said, you know, this is the day we need to do this. They cut a bunch of uh, railroad lines and a bunch of like um, telegraph cables. They hoisted a red flag over a farm <clears throat> and they marched out. They marched out. And we don't know exactly what the state response was because the state sent out a posse uh, under the sheriff of Seminole County to go put it down. And there's some open question if somebody said, no, we have to send a posse of people, we can't send the National Guard. Because the Oklahoma National Guard had actually just gotten back from a bit of military action on the Mexico border, uh, dealing, you know, to put down some unrest on the other side of the border, right? Mm -hmm. Some labor unrest during the Mexican Revolution. And so these guys were doing like very actively and with a forethought stuff to try and ruin the necessary infrastructure for the functioning of capitalism in the in Oklahoma and this is speculation but supposedly it's very likely that the governor was told not to use the national guard but to use a sheriff's posse so that the people who were there wouldn't shoot their friends yeah. and so those and so the sheriff brought a posse up uh, shot a black guy uh, two other people just died accidentally running away, um, and, and supposedly the rebellion collapsed. But until October, there was still draft resistance. At one point, they actually had a march through Muskogee. They got a, uh, a judge elected, a Democrat, uh, who was elected under the auspices of the WCU choosing him. Um, and they really did have it in their heads to, to start a revolution that, that spread over the entirety of the yeah. world. And this is this is also if you look if you look at the history of the U.S. This was kind of this is part of a broader arc that leads us to the first Red Scare. When you say Red Scare in American history, almost everybody thinks of McCarthyism in the in the fifties and sixties in mm -hmm. the post World War II age. But the the first Red Scare was actually after um, after World War One, and you had a ton of other stuff going on. Like for example, people don't know this: there was a Soviet uh, a workers' council running the city of Seattle for about a month at one point in time. Um, and this this was a this presaged that and set a lot of the groundwork for the conservative reaction of the Democrats to fight against labor reform that would go on until the Great Depression and that had been going on since the end of World War One. Yeah. So this this was something that that really terrified capital as as a whole in America. Yeah. And and, you know, I think it goes to what you said earlier, um, but, you know. We weren't taught this in school, and it's, you know, these people were people who were willing to stand up and say, hey, 
you know, there, there are things to be said about the draft, but like their argument was that, you know, we need to be at home. We have to be able to feed our families. If I leave for the draft, my family is going to starve. If, if we lose all the men, there's not going to be anyone left to take care of anybody. And not that women need anyone to take care of them. I'm fully aware of how capable they are as someone who was raised by a single mother. But I think... But at the time, gender was... Yeah. Really, really well, and I mean related to the kinds of labor you did, well, and, and not, so this not, was like not, a concern for these that, people but, because that's the social women, context. Women in a lot of ways, especially in Oklahoma, in in the you know the time that the state was, it's hard to get a title. It's hard to convince a court that you're the landowner. It's hard to uh, it's hard to do things like that, and that's what these men, these men, and these re- the these rebels. It's that's what they're fear was it wasn't the rebels like the 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 you know confederacy where it's like oh well we want to have slaves these were people who said no we work hard every day i i work terrible difficult labor i work in a mine i work on a tenant farm where i have to give 80 percent of what i grow to my landlord just to have the opportunity to take 20 percent home and try and feed my family out of that and these were people who said we can't take it anymore we have to stand up this wasn't and and there is no public memorials to this there's no we didn't learn this in school and it is just so amazing that we you know when we talk about the history of america and you know we need to remember our history it's like yeah we really should remember it and we should remember this kind of history and and i mean this this is exactly you know that's why we wanted to do this this week because it's the month it's the hundred year the centenary this month and also because we've talked a lot about the history that we are trying to remember and that history is terrible and there's a history of of people doing things that we should support that are good, that are, that are valuable, yeah. that are important. Yeah. Um, well, I, uh, I think that's a, a, about it for us this week. Um, I, uh, as always, you can find us over at our, our Twitter handle, at RedStarOverOK. Uh, do you have any specific memes you want to see this week? Ooh, I should find I should I should I should find some memes. You know, that, that guy looking at the girl while he's walking with the other girl? We could come up. Oh, yeah. You know, oh yeah, that's that, that, good. That, that, that's that's been pretty good. I've seen some good ones on the Donald with uh, uh, CNN looking as the girl being upset, and then DT as the guy looking at the other girl, and then the other girl just being like real news or like facts or something. So I've appreciated those. Those have been pretty good this week. <laughs> uh, but speaking of Reddit, you can find us over at our subreddit, our Red Star over Oklahoma. Uh, listen to us over at SoundCloud and iTunes. Um, if you have anything you'd like to tell us, uh, you can send an email to redstaroverok at gmail.com. You follow us on our social media. Uh, review us on iTunes. That's so important. Please right review now. us on iTunes. Um, yeah, and... Um, if you if you do if you do a review, send us an email or something. We might be able to get you a shout out involved. But uh, tell your friends. We love to you know love to you know have more listeners. So tell your friends, and uh, we still have those posters available. And uh, you know get you can get those off of the um, uh, subreddit and uh, post them up wherever you'd like. And make sure you send us a picture if you do uh, send that uh, put a poster up. Uh, Carl, you got anything? Yeah, else tweet this us. Week? Uh, tweet us, tweet us photos if you put up posters. I know there are two people that supposedly put up posters. Woo! So, I like come on, and I know one of you has Twitter. So. <laughs> you know well, who? You know who you are. <laughs> well, all right. Well, hey, this is a great episode. Um, I'm, uh, I'm gonna try to do my best to have a good week, and I hope you all have one too. Have a great week. See y'all. Have a great week, guys. Bye.